the Old Testament book of Ruth in your pew Bibles on page 258. You know, the holidays often act as an amplifier for our lives so that whatever's going on in your life can feel either more good or more bad depending on what's going on. So if your life is going good, it can seem super good during the holidays. If, if your Thanksgiving and Christmas is filled with family and food and happiness and life has been blessed... It all takes on an additional kind of glow during the holidays. You have so much to be thankful for. But the opposite is also true. If you're going through a lousy time, the holidays just seem to rub it in. If, if you've lost somebody that you love, you, you know, they always say that first Christmas, that first Thanksgiving, and you know, what they don't tell you is the second Thanksgiving, the second Christmas... Um, and, and it's hard. You feel it more acutely when that person is not there. Or if you're struggling financially, then the holidays come and, and there's all these expectations about gifts you have to buy and food you've got to produce and parties you need to host and outfits that need to be purchased. And so the holidays just kind of call you to blow money that you don't have uh, in, in order to to, to be part of uh, the, the whole experience. Uh, or if in general you, your life just seems lousy or lame or you're in pain or you're lonely or whatever it is, there's an amplifying effect that takes place. Well, this morning we are pushing pause on the book of First Peter just for Advent. We'll come back to First Peter in the new year. But during the four Sundays of Advent, I want to take us through the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Four, uh, there's four chapters in this book, and we'll take one each Sunday. And it's a beloved story. This is a story that Christians have loved. It's a great book in the Old Testament. It's about two ordinary women who experience tremendous loss. Talk about lousy and loss and pain. These women endured it. And yet, we'll see in the book of Ruth that God is faithful, and that God is always at work. And so it's a book of, of brokenness and pain in the real world, and yet God's faithfulness in the midst of it. And as we'll see by the end of Ruth, this book connects directly to Christmas. It actually, there's an actual linkage between what happens in this book historically and what we're celebrating, and we'll eventually get there by the end of the series. But let's start here, and in the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1, we're introduced to one of the main characters of the book, a woman named Naomi, and we see that she experiences a string of devastating losses, one after another. Let me read the first five verses. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the sons of his, names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. 
After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. That's a lot of pain in five verses. Let's just walk through it with Naomi. It starts off in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you're somewhat familiar with Old Testament history, you should know that the the time of the judges was a pretty bad time in Israel's history. It, It was not a good season in general. There was a lot of turning away from God and a lot of God allowing suffering and sending suffering upon His people to bring them back. It was not one of Israel's finer moments in its history. That period of the judges from when Moses brought the Israelites to the promised land and Joshua brought them in until the first king of Israel, King Saul, that that period of about 400 years or so in there when, when the judges ruled. So already we have the setting here. This is a bad time. This is not a happy time. And not surprisingly, in verse 1, there was a famine in the land. So perhaps this famine came as a judgment from God upon the Israelites. We don't know. But famines, of course, you know, when you're living in an agrarian culture and, and you're living by doing subsistence farming, a famine is catastrophic. You know, it, it would be like the stock market completely bottoming out with, you know, effects bigger than, than the Great Depression. I mean, it, it's the, the collapse of an economy. It's a collapse of livelihood. It really can be a matter of life and death, especially in that culture and in that time. And so, as a result of this terrible famine, uh, Elimelech and his wife and his two sons, they leave Judah, they leave Bethlehem, which is their home, which is their ancestral property, and it's so bad that in order to get food, they have to go to the southeast to Moab. Moab would have been on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, if you can kind of imagine a map of Israel in your mind. And so they had to go live among Moabites. The Moabites worshiped different gods. The Moabites were not always friendly with Israel. Uh, to put it in modern terms, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons became refugees. They were fleeing from famine. We've... Uh, but have refugees uh, sort of in the news recently as, as we've seen the, the refugee crisis in Syria that's spread into Europe and is coming to our own shores in America. And there's lots of political discussions about that and security discussions. Those are all important discussions. But for a moment, I, I just want us to think about the human side of that and, and to think about being a refugee where you don't have a home, you don't have stability, you, you don't have income. You're just cast out into the world. Um, and, and so he, here's, here's this family. They're wandering. They have to go to another country that's not their home and that it's not their God. It's not their people. And there in that other country, another tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. The husband dies. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So Naomi becomes a widow at this point. And again, here's another loss that unless you've been through it, it's tough to fully understand the the pain of this and the difficulty of this. Uh, Some of you here have lost a spouse. You know what that's like and and just the the kind of hole, the crater that it leaves in your heart and in your life. And so here's Naomi losing her husband. She's become a widow. But, But it's not just the pain of widowhood. You also have to remember that being a widow back then 
would have also been a very dire situation. You know, back then they didn't have Social Security. There wasn't mass health. There wasn't public assistance of various kinds. It, it, it wasn't a service economy like ours where even if you're older, it, uh, you can still find work in different ways to somehow provide for yourself. This would, this would be a very bad place to be a widow. And so in biblical times, being a widow had that, that additional sense of a precarious financial situation. So what, what would a widow do? Well, if she was young enough, she might go back to her father's house and go back under the protection and provision of her, her father's family. Or if she was young enough, if she could still have children, she might remarry. That was another option. Or like, here, Naomi, she's got boys. Hopefully you had sons and grandsons who could take care of you and provide for you when your husband died. He could farm the fields and do the, the back-breaking labor of, of sowing crops and harvesting crops in order to keep a family alive. Or if you didn't have that, well, I guess you just begged. And, and that was probably the worst situation of all, to be a, an older widow without sons and without family and beyond the age of remarrying. But fortunately, Naomi had her two boys. Well, for a while. Then in verse 4, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And so Naomi experiences that thing which no parent should have to experience, the loss of a child. But not just the loss of a child, the loss of both of her sons. So, so that she's, she's completely bereft. She has nothing, no family to show for it. And, and to think too about you know, what it meant for, for your family line to die out, you know, that, that was considered a particularly grievous curse to, to sort of have your family lineage end. We don't really think that way. We, we, as Westerners, we're more kind of individualistic. We think of ourselves, our own lives, maybe our immediate family. But remember, in, in that culture and in a lot of cultures, there's a sense that, that, that your, your identity is tied to your ancestors and, and the continuance of your family name means sort of the continuance of your own identity. So, so one of the worst things that could happen would be for your family name and your family line to be completely extinguished and exterminated. That, that the, the family line of Elimelech is now going extinct. And presumably there's no grandsons here based on the things we see in the rest of the story, no grandchildren. And so th this is like the end of the line for Naomi. She has finally reached her golden years, and it's fool's gold. This is the time in her life when she should be kind of like, like at Thanksgiving, you know, we all did, like pushing back from the table at this point in her life, in the table of life, and just being like, oh, yes, I'm so satisfied. Look at the big family around me, and, and you know, look at what this... This, uh, you know, wealth that we've built over time and all the things, you know, that, that's how it's supposed to go, right? But here she is at this point in her life, and she has nothing. There's nothing left. She's completely empty with nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. It's a desperate situation. I don't know if you've ever known somebody whose life has, like, completely imploded, where everything seems to have crashed and burned. Um, I, I've never experienced that personally, but of course as a pastor, I've walked with people, I've walked with some of you through those 
you know, life imploding kind of experiences and seasons. Um, unfortunately, I've walked with, through too many of them with people. Uh, but but it's, it's devastating. And when someone's life you know, just seems to completely fall apart in, in, in multiple levels and in significant ways, it's like it's beyond words. There isn't some thing you can say like, oh, just, you know, this too shall pass, you know, whatever. You, you can't say some phrase that makes it better. It's just awful. And so Naomi is a kind of female Job who's lost everything. She has nothing to show. Have you ever known someone who's gone through that? Maybe, maybe you feel to some degree or another that is where you are at this holidays, and the holidays are just amplifying the pain of that kind of situation. An utterly broken woman with nothing to show, in a sense, for her whole life. The things that a woman would show for her life in those days are not there. But the good news is that God is faithful. God has not forgotten. God is always at work. And so there's this little glimmer of hope in verse 6. It's not like a big, da-da, the day is saved. But it's just a little glimmer of hope that's going to build throughout the story over the next four weeks. Verse 6, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd be living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Her life isn't better. Who knows still what she's going to do when she gets there? I mean, it's, it's still a terrible situation. But she's heard that the Lord has come to the aid of his people. And so, in simple faith, she begins a journey back to Judah. It is the return of Naomi. The return of Naomi has begun. And then as she gets on the road, her two daughters-in-law are with her, of course, and so she tries to wave them off, right? Verses 8 through 9. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you if you've shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And they kissed, and she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. So, so Naomi's trying to just send them back now, which is, is so pathetic, right? Because like these two daughters-in-law is really the only thing she has left. But she's doing the right thing. Her sending these daughter-in-laws back, it's the right thing to do in this situation. Because, like, what does she have to offer them? You know, nothing. It's like, just go home at this point. In fact, she blesses them. She says, the Lord bless you. And, and the Lord give you husbands. You're still young. You can still get remarried. You still have family to go to. You have a future. There's nothing with me. So just, just go. It was the right thing to do. Naomi doing that was an act of love toward her two daughters-in-law. And it's, it's the logical thing. You know, if you, you want to look at her situation, logically, that was the right thing. But of course, they, they protest. Verse 10, we'll go with you. So finally, verses 11 to 13, Naomi gets real blunt. She just lays it out there. Naomi says, return home, my daughters. Verse 11, why would you come with me? Am I going to give you any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, 
and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And she really just lays it all out there, doesn't she? It's like, look, I got nothing. I'm totally empty. I'm old. I'm not getting remarried. I can't have more kids. There's nothing that I have to offer you girls for your future. And so you just need to go. It makes no sense for you to stay attached to me. I mean, even if I had a husband tonight, I couldn't, even if I had a kid tonight, which couldn't happen, like, are you going to wait for that boy to grow up and you're going to marry my kid who's born? I mean, come on, girls. You know, let's look at this logically. You need to go back. And it's, it's just so pathetic. She, she has nothing to offer them. The one good thing in her life, she has to send away these two daughters-in-law. And then she finally reaches her final statement in verse 13. This is kind of the climax of Naomi's statement in her speech here. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. The Lord's hand is against me. And she says it again. We'll we'll get there in a minute. I don't want to jump ahead too much. But look at at what else Naomi says back in verses, or later on in verses 20 and 21. She finally gets back to Bethlehem. She'll get there eventually, and, and, and they say, Naomi's here. And she says, verse 20, don't call me Naomi. She said, call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. That's a pretty strong statement. I mean, how, how, what do we do with that? Is Naomi, do you think in those statements that Naomi is giving up her faith in the Lord? I don't think so. I don't think Naomi is punting on her faith. I mean, verse 6, she hears that the Lord is providing food, and so by faith she goes back to where the Lord's providing food. And in, in none of these statements is she saying, I reject the Lord. I mean, she, in fact, she's saying the opposite. She's saying, I think God is in charge. She, she believes in the reality of God's sovereignty over her life. She's just saying, you know, God is in charge, and my life is miserable, so God has allowed this to happen to me. God has afflicted me. Well, maybe if she's not losing her faith, maybe she just has bad theology. Maybe that's the problem. She, she just needs her theology straightened out. Like, no, 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 Naomi. Look, listen, God didn't do this to you. Like, you know, when bad things happen, that's not God. Like, that's Satan, right? You know, think about the book of Job. All those bad things happened to Job. And we know from the book of Job, Satan did those things to Job, right? Satan killed his family, and Satan did all those things, and Satan took his money, and Satan afflicted him with boils. I mean, it's, it's Satan's fault, not God's fault. God does the good things, the devil does the bad things. And yet, when we look at the Old Testament from, and, and the New Testament, it's assumed that everything that happens ultimately comes from God's hand, that he's sovereign over it, even when those things come at the hands, the immediate hands of, of enemies, that even God there is over the whole thing. You know, go to the book of Job. What did Job say after he suffered all of those terrible losses? He said what? The Lord gives and who? The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says in the next verse, 
In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said by accusing God of wrongdoing. Now, if, if Job was saying that God took it away, and we're supposed to go, no, 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 God's not responsible for that, then Job would have sinned by charging God with wrongdoing. But he didn't. Because God is sovereign over everything, even the things that evil people do and the bad things that happen. He's the Lord over all. I don't understand that because I don't understand God and how God works because I'm just one of you. <laughs> We're just people. But he's sovereign. He's the Lord. So I don't think Naomi is wrong to say what she's saying. She's just being real. She's saying, I believe God is sovereign over all things. And you know what? My life is terrible right now. And so Naomi is, what she's doing in these words is lamenting. She's lamenting. She's saying, I believe, and my life is also awful. Oh God, why? God, why is this happening to me? And I think some of us struggle with lament. We struggle with that concept. There are some Christians who think that if you really love Jesus and if you really have faith, you'll never feel lousy. If you really love Jesus, you really have faith, nothing ever goes bad. In fact, there's whole theological systems around that, that if, you're, if you have faith, you'll be blessed. If you don't have faith, that's why bad things happen, so just have more faith and then everything will be good. Right? I mean, there's, there's a whole sort of way of looking at that. But, but if that's how it is, if, if being a faithful Christian means you never lament, then I don't know what to do with big chunks of my Bible. Like, I don't know what to do with the book of Psalms, where there's a whole bunch of Psalms that are laments. I don't know what to do with the book of Job. I don't know what to do with Ruth and Naomi's story. I also don't know what to do with Jesus on the cross, who cried out in the words of a lament from Psalms, Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so th th there's a place in this world, on this side of heaven, for having deep faith in God and also lamenting and grieving a situation and not fully understanding why God is doing what he's doing. And you can do both of those at the same time. And so Naomi cries out, and, and we need to be a church, and I think we are, but we need to keep striving to be a church where members in our church who are going through great pain find a reception that's loving and that's gentle and that's not a quick pat answer, you know, get over it. But, but that when people are in pain, instead of moving away from each other and being like, uh-oh, that's a mess, instead, you know, we lean in to each other and we learn to not only rejoice with those who rejoice, but we also learn how to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn as we care for each other and love each other. So, Naomi is bitter. Verse 14, at this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Now, I hope you don't think that Orpah is a bad daughter-in-law. I, I think what Orpah does by leaving at this point actually makes total sense. I, I don't think she's like being portrayed as a bad daughter-in-law because she leaves her mother-in-law. I mean, you know, her mother-in-law is like, look, there's nothing to stay for. And she's blessed her. She's, she says, I release you. You can go. It's, and, and so, you know, Orpah's not happy about it, but it makes sense for her to go back. No, no, the, the strange thing in this story, the shocking thing, the thing that should make us say, what? You know, the, the thing in this story is Ruth, not Orpah. 
And I think sometimes we forget that because especially maybe you've read this story before, so you kind of know where the whole thing's going. You know, don't tell, but you know where this whole story is going to lead. And, and so we kind of know this moment is coming where Ruth is like, I'm going to stay with you, Naomi. So, but, but pretend you've never heard the story before. Try to pretend like this is the first time you've ever heard it. The strange quirk in this story is that, is that Ruth stays, not that Orpah leaves. Like, why would Ruth stay? And so Naomi says again, verse 15, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. You could almost see this scene out in the desert on the road back to Judah. And, and there in the distance is, is, you know, Orpah with her donkey and her possessions. And she's going off in the distance. And, and there's, you know, Naomi and just trying to push Ruth away. And Ruth is like clinging to her, her dress and, and she won't leave. And she's like, look, there's your sister. Like, go, you need to go. And then... Ruth replied, verse 16, in these amazing words. This this is the high point of chapter 1. Amazing words. She said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Wow, I mean, it's almost poetry, some of those words. It's just such a powerful speech. You know, Naomi has her powerful speech, and it's answered with Ruth's even more powerful speech. It's so remarkable. It's remarkable for at least two reasons. I think there's two amazing things about what Ruth says. Number one, it is a statement of of just amazing love. There's so much love in what Ruth is doing here. She's not just saying, hey, I'll, I'll walk you back to Judah and make sure you're all settled, then I'll come home. She's like, I'm with you. And once you die, I'm gonna I want them to bury me right next to you. We're going to be buried in the same place. I'm going to live with you no matter what happens. No matter what, I'm in it with you, Naomi, to the end. And even after your end, I'm going to be there with you. This is total devotion. It's, it's radical love. And, you know, what does Naomi have to give to her? Nothing. There isn't anything to be gained for Ruth in this exchange. It's pure, gracious love toward Naomi. I think we have in Ruth a little glimpse of the kind of love that we talk about in the gospel. I think we have in Ruth a glimpse of the kind of love that we sang about this morning in our worship songs as we extolled God's love this morning. You say, well, what's God? why is everyone so singing about God's love? This is why. This is how God loved us. You know, we're, we're like the, you know, if you want to take it into a kind of spiritual analogy, we're, we're like Naomi. We've got nothing. We have nothing to draw the love of God. We are bereft. We are sinful and broken. There's nobody here who has anything spiritual to offer to God. There's no one here that has good deeds that can satisfy God's holiness. You and I are are like Naomi. We have nothing. In fact, just the opposite. We're sinful people. And if there's anything that, that would be evoked from God's heart toward us instinctively, it wouldn't be love. It would be judgment. 
But to think that God so loved the world. He loved this world, this messed up world that, that should not draw love. And yet God loved the world and he sent his own son, Jesus. This is incredible love. It's God pledging himself to a people who have nothing to offer him. To use the words of Naomi, or uh, rather Ruth, it, and, and to sort of turn them into the, the, the cross of Christ. Think about what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's as if Jesus was saying on the cross to us, your sins will be my sins. Your shame will be my shame. Your curse will be my curse. And Jesus saying back, in exchange, my righteousness will be your righteousness. My glory will be your glory. My blessing will be your blessing. And so Ruth's love for Naomi gives us a little picture of the sacrificial love that Jesus showed us on the cross. But not only is this an amazing statement of love, it's also, I think, an amazing statement of conversion. So there's not only this horizontal dimension to Ruth's statement of, I pledge myself to you, Naomi, but she's also got this vertical dimension where she really is pledging herself to Naomi's God. This is, this is a conversion that's taking place here. She's leaving her religion. So the Moabites, they worshiped a god named Chemosh. Chemosh of the Moabites, and that's who they all worship. She's, she's renouncing Chemosh, and she is coming under, by faith, the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. She, she's leaving one religion for another. Uh, you know, look what she says here. She says, uh, you know, verse 16, your people will be my people, your God, my God, and then in verse 17, she swears an oath. You know, an oath is how you, you made official promises. So, you, you know, today we, we, get them, we sign a document with a lawyer, we get it notarized or whatever. Back then you said an oath. That's how you notarized your promise. And she says what? May who? Verse 17. May the Lord, that's the God of Israel, deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates me from you. So she takes an oath, but she takes it in the name of Israel's God, not in the name of her own ancestral God. This is an amazing statement of conversion. I was trying to think in the Old Testament, you know, where do we see pagan, Gentile, idol-worshiping, non-Israelites converting to becoming the worshipers of the God of Israel? You know, there's not many. Like, you know, Rahab and the prostitute, maybe. I was thinking like in, in Jericho. You know, maybe Naaman, who gets cleansed of leprosy and wants some soil to go worship his own God. I was thinking, maybe Nebuchadnezzar at the end of Daniel. Maybe that one might be a stretch. Who knows? But this one's so clear. This is probably the clearest statement of conversion in the Old Testament. You've got a bunch of it in the New Testament. All kinds of Gentiles get saved by Jesus in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, you don't have these, these moments like this. This is a really amazing moment. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. I am no longer a Moabite. I'm now putting myself with the people of God and their covenant with Yahweh. It's an amazing statement, I think. And the incredible thing is that through Christ, anyone can come to faith in Jesus. You know, how do you, how do you convert to Christianity anyway? Well, this is it. You just put your faith in Jesus. There's not a class you have to take. There's not a, a, a ritual you have to go through. There's not an entry fee you have to pay. 
Uh, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no thing you have to do. You just have to put your faith in Jesus. So what this means is, just to put it, make it practical, that means that anybody here this morning can come to the Lord by simply putting their faith in Jesus as Ruth did, as she put her faith in the God of Israel, who is Jesus. And anyone here can do that. You don't have to do anything. I mean, even, even if you're like an outsider, even if you're like a Moabite here this morning, you could still do this. Even if you're like, I grew up in a different religion altogether, or I have no clue about the Bible. Don't, you told me to turn. I'm so glad you said the page number. I had no idea where to go. Or, or even if you're like, yeah, I, I've lived a kind of life that I know is the opposite of what Christians are supposed to live. Or, or even if you, know, you have all these questions, you don't know anything about it. Anyone can put their faith in Christ and be brought into the people of God by simply saying to Jesus, you will be my Savior, you will be my God, and I put my faith in you. That's the amazing truth that salvation is by faith alone, alone in Christ alone. So put your faith in Christ. There's nothing holding you back. The only thing keeping you from Jesus right now is your own, is your own stubbornness. But this is the Savior. And we see this all here in Ruth. Ruth gives us a picture both of Jesus and a picture of faith in Jesus. And so, verse 18, Naomi can't send her away. She urges her. Ruth won't go, so she stops urging her. And so the return of Naomi and Ruth. Verse 19, the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they had arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi has faith, but she's still really hurting. Everything's not better yet. Maybe you have faith, but everything's not better for you. It's okay. Because God is still working. God is still faithful. Naomi can't quite see it yet. She can't even see, and how would she possibly have known that this Ruth who's standing by her side was, is going to be used so powerfully by God to bring about so much rescue and hope. But she can't see it, and that's okay. You don't have to be able to see it for God to be doing it. <laughs> you just have to have faith that, that he is. Because look at verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem at the barley, as the barley harvest was beginning. How does the story begin? Famine, leave Bethlehem. How does chapter 1 end? Return to Bethlehem. Barley is beginning to be harvested. God is at work. And even though Naomi can't see it, it's happening. I mean, even the name of the town Bethlehem, you know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? Beth or, or Bet means house, and Lechem means bread. It's the house of bread. She's come back to the house of bread. And so bread is, is just a picture of God's provision and grace and, and salvation throughout this whole story. It, it's, it's, it represents that. And so the barley harvest is beginning. What kind of a holiday are you having? For those of you here who are, are just struggling 
who wonder where God is. Maybe you're in pain. Maybe there's just some things in your life that have, are so unsettled. And you can't see how any of it would work out. Have faith in God. And you say, why? What's he going to do? I don't know. I just know he's faithful to his people. And he loves those who trust in him. And I don't know what it'll look like. But there's Ruth. And there's a barley harvest beginning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great faithfulness to us, even when when we can't feel it, even when we can't see it, even when it seems that the Lord has made our lives bitter and we don't really see any let up from that, like Naomi. We don't see how that's going to get fixed. And God, we thank you that in spite of all that, we have faith. Lord, we're like Ruth, who in spite of all that, she still believed in Naomi's God. Lord, May we have faith like the disciples who said, Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so, Lord, we have questions, we have doubts, but we know that you are, you're true and you're faithful, and in the end, you'll work for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, give us faith to hold on, even when we can't see what it is you're doing. And God, I pray that we would be a church that would create emotional and relational space for one another to just be in, to be in process. Lord, help us not to have to be all tidy and neat and have all the answers, but that we can just love each other where we're at. And know, Lord, that you're the one who's doing the work, not us. And so, God, help us to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice in our midst. And, God, give us a love for each other like Ruth had for Naomi. Give us a a devotion to each other and help us to believe in you. And finally, Father, I pray that if there's any Moabites here, if there's anyone who's far away, God, I pray that you would show them your open arms stretched out on the cross to receive any who would come to Jesus. Lord, may they know your love, we pray this morning in Christ's name.